Today I want to talk about being salt and light. How many know that you guys are supposed to be salt and light? And uh, the thing is, is that I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but the world is, seems to be getting darker every single day. But here's the thing about darkness. Have you ever noticed that when it's dark, you can see light better? Right? If you, if you go out in the middle of the day and you flip on a flashlight, it doesn't seem like it does anything. But if you go out in the nighttime, particularly if it's really dark out, then that, that seems to be so much brighter in darkness. And the reality is, is that, that that is going to be the same for us as well. We're going to stand out if we're actually being the light that we're supposed to be. And people are going to see us. So today I want to start thinking about and talking about as, as light and salt in this dark time, how can we have an impact? How can we make a difference? You know, one of the things that I've, I've noticed that, uh, particularly in this area that we live, you know, the, the days of going out and yelling on a street corner, um, the impact and the effectiveness of that seems to have gone down. And then even from when we started before COVID and post-COVID, <laughs> The, the things that we used to do that seemed to be very effective at reaching our community seems to have kind of fallen short. Some of the stuff that we used to do doesn't seem to do it anymore. So uh, today I want to take a look at, at what we can do as Christians, kind of a practical approach to how you can still be salt and light. Kind of going back to the basics, if you will. Because the reality is, is that uh, in many ways, the times of the big corporate church events and get-togethers, um, they're just not as easy to do anymore, and they don't seem to have the same reach. And thank God we're starting to get out of a lot of that funk that we were in. But the truth is, is that if we want to be effective, we're going to have to look at us as individuals, how we can personally be salt and light into the world. Amen? And here's the thing. How many of the world is always watching you? The world is always watching Christians. For most people, <laughs> they're just watching to find out if we're going to be hypocrites. You know, we were talking about this uh, idea in, in Bible study a couple weeks ago, and, and uh, we were asking, you know, what's one of the common, uh, uh, I would say misconception, but I'm not sure it's a misconception. What's one of the common conceptions about Christians and, and, and the, the, the reputation that many of us have is that we're hypocrites, and I asked, well, why do you suppose the people think that? And I think it's because too many of us are hypocrites. We've given the world good reason to think Christians are hypocrites. And it's unfortunate. You see, the thing is, is the world is always watching. They're always looking at what you're doing. And the moment that you said you were a Christian, now what you do gets attributed to Christians, whether you want it to or not. You can't say, man, if I could just not be Christian for a day, you guys just ignore me. The moment you said you were a Christian, people are watching you and they're attributing to Christ the things that you do. That's the thing about light. It's always shining. Light is always shining. But the problem is, is that it can be modified. Light can be deflected. Light can be colored. Light can be filtered. And light can be distorted. You see, the moment that you said you're a Christian, your light is shining. But I'm curious is how, to, how does the rest of the world see your light shining? Anybody ever had a fish tank? You ever remember looking into the fish tank and everything seems to be a little distorted? Or like if you ever stuck something in it, like it looks like it goes in straight, then all of a sudden it's all twisted going a different way or the, the lines don't meet up? That's because light can be deflected. Light can be modified. In a fish tank, it actually magnifies everything that's in there because the light is actually changed by passing through the water. And uh, I don't know if, if all you guys know this, but I'm also a photographer. I've been getting back into it a lot recently. Um, but in photography, I used to do studio photography. I used to run a small studio out of my home. And one of the things that we often did was use filters to change how the image would look. And have you ever seen those, uh, and they, remember the old glamour shots? Do you guys remember those? They, they always, always had this like dreamy look to them. 
Now, you can buy really expensive filters to put on the end of your camera to mess up the image like that, to make it look not sharp anymore. But one of the cheapest ways to do it, a cheap trick that we used to do, is you would just take a plain glass filter, and you would smear a thin layer of Vaseline over it. And it'll give you that same dreamy quality look. Makes your skin look great because it removes all the fine detail. And if you look at even our, our glasses that we wear, they do the same thing. Like if I take off my glasses, everybody gets a little bit blurrier, but I put them on, all of a sudden the, the glasses are filtering and shaping and redirecting the light into my eye holes so that I can see you guys better. You see, light can be modified. So I wonder, when people look at us, are they seeing the pure light of Jesus? Are we living our lives in such a way that when they look at us, that they see Jesus? Or are we living our lives in such a way they go, wait, he's a Christian, but we look just like everybody else? Or we've distorted the light that should be shining from us, amen? So today I want to talk about what are some practical ways to make sure that our, sh our light is shining clear and bright and our salt has not lost its saltiness. Amen? <laughs> Acts 13.47 This says, for, the, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. If you guys don't know this, this is actually quoting Isaiah 49.6. It says, um, it is too light, is it too light? It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And this verse in Isaiah is actually referring to the Messiah. It's referring to Jesus. <laughs> he was going to be the light to the nations. And God referred to, it's interesting in that verse, God referred to saving the Jews to be too small of a thing. It wasn't just the tribes of Jacob that he was after. His plan, his plan has always been salvation for the entire earth. Too many of us think that, that uh, the Gentiles got put in as plan B only because the Jews messed up. It's always been the plan was for the entire earth to be included in salvation. But Jesus was the light even to the Gentiles, a light to the nations, and we are an extension of that light. When people see us, they should actually see Jesus. That's how we should live our lives. That's what we should look like. Christ in us is actually the light that we shine to the rest of the world. And we don't shine it to point out flaws, but instead as a beacon of hope to draw them back home. You know, when, when we're shining as the light of Jesus, it should be an encouragement for people to want to have what we have. But far too many Christians use this light to point out everybody else's failures and flaws. You see, the Jews had rejected the message of Jesus, so Paul actually turned to the Gentiles. And he began to be a light to them. And one of the things we can think about is, is <laughs> the Bible is actually pretty simple. It uses simple language, simple metaphors that we can all understand. And it's made in such a way that we can understand what it's talking about. And we can think, well, what does it mean to be the light to the world? What does that actually mean? And, and really, you just have to think about it practically. What is light used for? Mostly... Light is used to guide the way. It's, it's used to show the way. It's used to point out dangers and pitfalls. And, and uh, one of my favorite stories, and, and many of you guys have probably already heard it, but this is a, there's a, a transcript of a radio conversation that actually happened of a U.S. naval ship with Canadian authorities. And it was off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. And this is what the transcript reads. The Americans say, Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians say, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. And the Americans say, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. And the Canadians say, no, I say again, you divert your course. And the Americans say, 
This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. And the Canadians responded, This is the lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> you see, the lighthouse had been put up to point out dangers that were in the road. It had been, been put up to actually help guide ships' ways that were coming and passing. We also used light to illuminate a path. Anybody ever been camping? How many of you guys like to walk, walk to the bathroom with no flashlight at night? <laughs> nope, you want to be able to illuminate your path. Now I'm going to tell you guys a secret trick you can do with a flashlight that should give you nightmares every time you go camping. So if you take a flashlight and you hold it up in line with your eyeballs and you put it out, you're going to see all these reflective things out there. They look like little grains of sand. And you can pick any one of them. And if you're out camping in the desert here, you'll see them everywhere. Pick any one of them and just walk towards it. Anybody want to guess what those little reflective things are? Spiders. Spiders. You'll see hundreds of spiders out there. Everyone you walk up to will be a spider. It's actually pretty cool. You should try it. <laughs> but if you use a flashlight, you can illuminate your way, right? You can make sure you're not stepping in to a path, the path of spiders or snakes. And we use it to see where we're going. Light is also used to quell fear. How many of you guys remember your children? They want to leave the bathroom light on. They want to leave the bedroom light on. Why? Because it helps reduce fear. We also use light as a point to navigate too. If you've ever seen airplanes coming in, you'll notice they have the runway lit up. Why do they do that? So that they can know where that they're supposed to be going. And then finally, the most basic use of light is so we can see. That's what we're supposed to be helping people do. We're the light of the world. We're supposed to be quelling fear, showing the way, pointing out dangers and pitfalls. We should be a point to navigate to, an example to the rest of the world. And finally, we should just be making it where people can see the truth. Amen? And if we go on in and, and, uh, Matthew 5.13, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This has always been a funny thing to me. Because salt, by definition, is salt. So think about this question. How, how, how could, what use is salt if it's not salty? It's almost a ridiculous, absurd question. Like, what is salt if it's not salty? If it's not salty, then it's not salt. It's, it's, it's almost an absurd question. But he's asking you here, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's kind of like saying you're the salt of the earth. It's a ridiculous idea to think that you wouldn't be salty, that you wouldn't have saltiness. It's, it's salt not being of salty is just an absurd idea. And once again, if we just look at these, these, these examples and think about what was salt used for? What does he mean by you're the salt of the earth? What was salt used for? Especially in those days, how many of them didn't have refrigeration? You know, refrigeration is actually one of the greatest inventions a man has ever done, and it's, it's changed the course of history to be able to preserve our food with refrigeration. But back then, they didn't have refrigeration. So one of the things that they did was they packed meat and salt because it actually helped preserve food. So when you think about it that way, if I'm the salt of the earth, what is my goal? What is my, maybe I'm here to help preserve people. Not you personally, but you show them Jesus. And that way they can be preserved, right? They can be saved, amen? Salt is also used to bring things to its full potential. What do I mean by that? Have you guys ever watched any of uh, Gordon Ramsay's cooking shows? You might have to be quick with the mute button sometimes, depending on which version you are. But one of the things he gets so upset with people is if they don't season their food. And 
when he says season, all he means is you're not salting your food. And the reason is if you don't salt food, if you don't season food, it doesn't live up to its full potential. Many times, salt just if you don't salt your food, it just doesn't taste good. The number one difference between your food and a restaurant's food, I can almost guarantee it, is you don't put enough salt in it. If you season your food, your food will taste better. It, it brings out the flavors. It brings it to its full potential. That's what we're supposed to be doing as salt as well, helping bring people to their full potential. And you think about this absurdness. You know, I, one of the things that I, over the years, I've tried all different kinds of seasonings on my steak. But now I just get back to the basics. Salt, pepper, onion, garlic. That's, that's all I put on my steaks now because I've tried all this other stuff. But I've always come back to this is the easiest way to make a steak good, taste good. It's just salt and pepper. And really, you don't even need onion and garlic. You can get away with just salt and pepper and it'll taste amazing. And that key is salt. If you don't have salt, meat tastes bland. But when you think about the absurdness of this, like ab- absurdiness, absurdness, absurdness. I want to use ness on the end. So would it be absurdness, absurdiness, absurdness, ridiculousness? I could use that one. The ridiculousness of uh, not having salt on the meat. I mean, think about it. What would salt be that's not salty? It's it's a little granule. And if it if it, if it wasn't, it would I guess it would be like putting sand on your meat. I mean, that's what it would be like tasteless grittiness. It's just an absurd statement. We're supposed to be salt. And if you're not salt, then you're kind of worthless. I know that's a harsh statement, but when it comes to the kingdom of God, if you're not being salt, if you're not uh, fulfilling the Great Commission, if you are not being a, a, a light shining brightly, then you are missing one of the key elements to being a Christian. And that's what he says here. And for me saying you're kind of worthless, don't get offended at me. That's what, that's what it says here. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That doesn't mean you don't have value as a person. It doesn't mean that, that, that uh, you're terrible. But what it does mean is that your contribution to the kingdom of heaven is limited and worthless if you're not actually being salt and light. Amen. Ephesians 5, 3 through 4, we're going to talk about who we are in Christ. And we started looking like that. And 5, 3 through 4, it says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You know, we talked about um, looking at how to be salt and light, and we had three things that we wanted to, to look at. Um, where did it go? Oh, I think I deleted those notes. But basically, <laughs> the ideas we're going to look at is, is, is what do we look like, how we act, how we behave, and, and consistency. Those are the things that are important to being salt and light. <laughs> And when we look at here, this is what Paul is, is telling us, is, is how you behave makes an impact, makes a difference. And the reality is, is that, let me ask you this question. How many of you guys are saints? All right, put your hands down. How many of you guys are saved? Put your hands up, leave it up. If you're saved, put your hand up. I don't see your hands up, put your hands up. All right, everyone here is saved. Good, that'll make it easier at the end. Now leave your hands up, just keep them up. How many of you guys are saints? Oh, good. You guys got the answer right. <laughs> you see, so many of us have this idea, I think from Catholicism, that, that's, that saints are, are those special people in Christianity and the Catholic Church, right? And, and the Catholic Church has a, a lot of, of different rules to become a saint. And one of the, the, the interesting ones to me is not only do you have to do a miracle while you're alive, but you also have to perform miracles after you're dead before you can be considered to be a saint, which is interesting thing to me. But um, that's not how the Bible describes saints. Being a saint is, is just being a Christian. Christians were considered saints. It's an identity that you were given by being in Christ. So when he says here, as is proper among the saints, he's not talking about the named ones that you see on medallions. 
He's talking about all of us. When he's talking about saints, he's talking about you and me, and he starts talking about how we behave and act. Listen, sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness will not even be named among you because that's what's proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And here's the thing is that when he's talking about all these things, it's because people see us doing these things as well, and it makes an impact. There are two indications that are really key in determining a person's character, what makes them laugh and what makes them cry. You can tell a lot by when you, when you see those things. So I want to ask you this. When you're at work and somebody engages in a, a dirty joke or some sort of sexual innuendo in their jokes, are you laughing it up right there alongside of them? Or do you attack people with your tongue at work? Are you always putting people down? Do people understand who you are at work? Do people even know? If I went to work and I asked people if you were a Christian, would they be able to tell me yes or no? If I were to ask them, hey, is this person sincere in their faith, would they be able to tell me yes or no? How we behave makes an impact in, our, in, in how people perceive Jesus as well. When we say that we're light in the world, that that the, that shining is by how we act how we live our lives it says listen don't let any of that nonsense be part of what comes out of your mouth instead let there be thanksgiving has anybody at your job ever heard you thank jesus something that, that, that i think you should ask yourself and then in ephesians 4 29 this is right before that. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And I'm going to keep talking about work, because that's where most of us, we all have, most of us have work in common. But really, it's any time that you're interacting with other people. But sticking with that work theme, when you're at work, do you encourage people at work? When somebody has a problem, do you help them out? Or do you ignore them? Are you hoping that they might fail so you'll get their job instead? If they don't do well, maybe I'll get to be their position. Are you a complainer? Do you complain about your job or your coworkers or maybe your boss? When somebody gets a raise, do you congratulate them and encourage them? Or do you talk bad about them? about how they don't deserve it. It should have been you or somebody else. You see, your words have impact and they have power. What are you using yours for? Did you know that when we speak in a wise manner that we are a fountain of life? The impact and moral or even ultimately people's health is good when we speak in that way. Otherwise, it can bring death. This is what it says in Proverbs 13, 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. You have power in the words that you say. You can make an impact in the, in the, in, in the people around you. And the truth is, how you behave, like we've talked about this whole time, is going to be attributed to Christ. So instead, we need to make sure that what's coming out of our mouth is demonstrating Christ's love around us, making sure that we're building people up and giving grace to those who hear. Amen? We also need to take the opportunity to share Christ with people as well. Acts 17, 1 through 4 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, you know, one of the things i got to start doing, <laughs> I don't know if you guys do this, but when you read, I have no problem pronouncing these words in my head. But when I try to say them out loud, then I realize I have no idea how to pronounce them and I should have looked it up. You'll notice lately in a lot of my messages, I actually put the phonetic spelling of stuff so I can remember how to say it because apparently I just like glance over it when I'm reading in my head. Anyway, when they had passed through these couple of places, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, it was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. You know, one of the things that if we're going to be a light shining brightly in the world is that when we have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus, we need to tell them about Jesus. You know, that was Paul's custom. He went everywhere telling them about Jesus. That was what his life was. You say, well, that must be easy for Paul. All he had to do was run around and preach. But the truth is, we know that Paul worked everywhere he went. He had a full-time job. He didn't accept, actually, he didn't accept stuff from people because he didn't want there to ever be any confusion as to why he was doing what he was doing. He wanted to... Show the world Jesus, and that was it. So when the opportunity arises, tell them about Jesus. Now, I know sometimes in our jobs that that can be frowned upon. You can might even get in trouble for it. I'm not saying going around and beat people over the head with the Bible. It's not effective anyway. But when they ask, when you have the opportunity, share. You want to know the number one way to have the opportunity? To live your life in such a way that they start asking why things are the way they are in your life. Why do you never seem afraid? Why do you never seem anxious? Why do you, I mean, the economy's falling apart, the world's falling apart, you know, our, 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 our stocks are going in the drain. How come you never seem upset by these things? That's a perfect opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Because my trust is in something else. You'll have opportunities, especially if you live your life in such a way that it looks different than theirs. Amen? And then you can tell them that there is hope no matter what they're going for, that Christ died so that they could live. And here's the thing. Most people are aware of their shortcomings, and they have a concept and understanding of justice. They know they're missing something, even if they won't admit it. So answer their questions when they ask them. Write their misconceptions. That means that you might want to have some information. You might want to study your word so that you can answer correctly. You might want to study about the, the historicity of the Bible and the apologetics. Apologetics is just looking at the history and the, and the truthiness and the trustworthiness of what has been written in history. You know, you might want to have some of that information so when they come and, and begin to point fingers and try to say that you're crazy for le- believing some fairy tale God, you know, some old man fairy tale in the sky, you go, well, actually, no, let me, let me give you some evidence. You know, the, the science as we know it now says that, that, that once there, there was nothing and then there was something, that there was a beginning. The universe had a beginning. Einstein's theory of relativity shows that there has to be a beginning. Common sense says there has to be a beginning. If there wasn't a beginning, we could never get to where we are now. If you don't have a starting point, how would we get here? There, there's all these, and you can begin to share that stuff with them. And show them like even science says that there was a beginning and the best explanation for that is God. But if you don't know that, how can you share that? How can you write their misconceptions? So make sure that you are prepared as well. You know, one of my jobs as a pastor, Pastor Joseph's job as well, is, is to uh, build up the saints you know, one of the misconceptions of the church is it's the fivefold ministry that's it's their job to get everybody saved. Nope, our job is to prepare you guys to get everybody saved. So one place to start is, is Sunday mornings. You get equipped on Sunday mornings. You get additional equipping if you come on Wednesdays. But you know what? There's, there's I see if we take out the, what, what is that, six hours total, maybe if you're here the whole time. How many hours are in a week, Pastor Joseph? I know you got to know this. Oh. Let's see, 7 is 140 plus 20, 168 hours in the week, and we got 164 of them used up by church. That's a lot more hours in the week that you guys could be equipping yourself so that you're prepared, amen? So spend time in the morning in your word. Spend time learning. Where can I learn this stuff, Pastor? You know what? You can learn anything on YouTube. <laughs> Get on YouTube. Search up some, some, some debates. Now it's not all going to be right. You're going to have to use some wisdom. But uh, you can learn this stuff and be prepared when people talk to you. Because the alternative is what happens to many of our kids. They get to college, someone challenges them, and instead of being prepared with a response, they're converted to the other side because they were never equipped to respond. So whenever you have an opportunity, take it. And that doesn't even just mean at work. 
Ask if the store clerk needs prayer. Ask if, if your waiter needs prayer. You know, one of the things, do you guys remember when Pastor Jerome was down? One of the things that I, I, I admire about him is he is the best person I've ever seen at being able to just talk about a random person and start talking to him about Jesus. One, it's like, like, man, he has no fear. And two, he just, he just has a gifting to do it. So when he was down here, it's one of the things I told him, like, that's not a gifting in my area, in my life. And, and I understand that to an extent. Like, I'm, I'll probably never be the same as him. And, and that's okay. That's not what God's called me to do. But the Bible also says that we're to do the work of an evangelist. You know, Paul told Timothy that. He was a pastor. And I imagine Timothy was just like me, and Paul had to remind him, we well, still got to do the work of an evangelist. So one of the things I told Pastor Jerome, I said, hey, can, I want to go with you when you do that. I want to see how you do it. And the funny thing is, is we, for those of us who it doesn't come naturally, we complicate it in our minds. One, we get overwhelmed by fear. We think that if we mention you know, the, the word Jesus, they're going to somehow you know, just fly off the handle at us and, and, and either cut us down or maybe even actually hurt us. Still, still to this day, when I go to speak to people, I have to shut my mind up because of all the terrible things that I imagine that could happen. You want to know how many times that stuff's actually happened? <laughs> Not even once. But one thing that I noticed about him, that the, all he does is ask questions. It's amazing how, hey, where are you from can lead to Jesus. Where are you from? Where are you? Just start talking to them. And it's amazing. So if you're with a store clerk or you're with, you know, it's one of those things. It wasn't too long ago, uh, Michelle and I went out to eat at uh, Texas Roadhouse. And neither of her, neither one of us are, are, are very... <laughs> gifted in this area. The truth is, you guys may not know this, but I am a complete introvert. I would actually be fine if me and Michelle just went off in the woods somewhere, and I, and I never saw another person again. <laughs> That's one of the things that God has like really worked on in my heart to change and, and, and to, to, to put a different calling on my heart, because personally, that's, that's kind of who I am. So this doesn't come easy to me. But it's amazing if you'll just take the opportunity to start asking questions. So we got to start talking to this, to this, to this young lady. And uh, she had just moved here from another state and her kids were on her way out. And we got to speak to her, see what's going on in her life. We invited her to church. She said she was going to come. She hasn't yet. We're still waiting, still praying. But we got to pray with her. And she just began to break down and even start crying and be, to thank us just for taking the moment. And, it's, and all it was is because... I asked a question. It's not as difficult as we make it out to be. But it is our responsibility. Because here's what it says here, is that this was Paul's custom. It wasn't something Paul did every now and then. It wasn't just on the occasion. This is what he did everywhere he went. And it should be the same with us. Amen? Matthew 25, 34 through 40 says, And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You know, next we need to think about how are we supposed to act towards others as well. You know, the first was talking about our own personal behavior, the first things we just looked at, but now is we need to talk about our behavior that is actually dealing with other people. And how many of you guys have heard the expression, actions speak louder than words? Do you want to know why that expression exists? Because actions speak louder than words. You can say you love somebody, but if you never do anything that demonstrates it, nobody believes you. You see, our actions are what demonstrate what we believe or what we feel. That's even how faith works. We can say we have faith, but we actually need to exercise that faith. Amen? But here's the thing is that our, our actions speak louder than words. And 
what we do to others, how we treat others, is actually how you treat Jesus. Let that sink in. The last time that you got cut off in traffic and you just started yelling and cussing at him. That's how you were treating Jesus. I didn't say it. That's what it says here. Don't look at me. How we treat others. That's, that's what he says, right? He says, listen, when did we see a stranger walk you naked and clothe you or sick in prison and visit you? And he says, listen, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. You, do, you don't think that person that cut you off in, tra- in traffic was what Jesus was talking about here is one of the least of these? So when we treat people well, that's how we're treating Jesus. And what it is, is, is really it's just a response and an understanding of how Jesus treated you. He took care of you. He made a way for you. He forgave you. He healed you. He made you whole. He did all those things. Our natural response would be to express that to others as well. But when we treat others badly, it's the same thing as well. It's because we don't understand how valuable they are. And some of that might reflect the reality of us. We don't understand how valuable that we are. The Scripture says that they're going to know us by our love. John 13, 35 says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now this is specifically speaking about how we respond to one another in the church. The one another this is talking about is our brothers and sisters in Christ. But I think that this can be extrapolated, extrapolated towards everybody. And people are watching us to see how we treat others. To see that if we are really going to act out what we say we believe. Amen? Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything that we should do should be done as unto the Lord. Do you know that when you go to work, you work for Jesus, not your boss? The boss just benefits. We live for Him. I believe that Christians should be the most sought-out employees. I know that they say that you're not supposed to be able to do that, but and the problem is, is that too many Christians have given a reason for us, for, for people not to think this way. But as Christians, if we're living for the Lord and everything that we do, we should be the most sought out employees. Because here's the thing, is that we should be doing it in His name. You see, in today's society, we don't pay attention to names or heed names as they did, that would have been common in, in this time. You see, back then, if you were to do something in the name of the king, it would be as if the king was doing it. So when we do anything in Jesus' name, it should be as if he is doing it. When we're doing it in his name, we're, we're doing it in his, his, his authority, his power, his will. It's as if he did it, just us being his hands and feet. So we have to ask ourselves, is what we're doing something that he would do? You know that uh, it's got kind of uh, trite over the years, but the old WWJD, that still has some merit. What would Jesus do? We do it in his authority. The good news is, is because we're going in his name, we have his authority and power behind us. That means that we're, we're more than conquerors. We're victorious. We have his authority and strength behind us. But it also, uh, as an aside, this should also limit the things that we do as well. There are a few things that shouldn't be done in the name of Jesus. And the thing is, is that how many things are we supposed to do in the name of Jesus? Everything. All the things. And if we're supposed to do everything in the name of the Jesus, and there are some things that shouldn't be done in the name of Jesus, what do you think that tells us? Maybe there's some things that we shouldn't be doing. There are things that shouldn't be done in the name of Jesus because they end up reflecting poorly on Him. I guess this is why when famous Christians fail, it causes so much damage because they begin to see what the man did and attribute it to the Christ. And here's the thing is, is the world's not confused about this. The world sees everything that we do as Christians as being done in the name of Jesus. So they naturally attribute all the things that we do to Christ. 
And we have to understand that and take that seriously because that is not an insignificant responsibility. Amen? In Acts 17, 5 through 6, it says, But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. You might think to yourself, Oh man, if everything that I do is going to be attributed to Christ, maybe I should just go hide in the shadows so people can't see me. Just in case. But that's a a backwards answer to the problem. You shouldn't hide what you're doing. You should just make sure what you're doing is okay to be seen. Amen? Because the thing is, we're supposed to be known. People should know who we are. People should know that we're Christians. They they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city. These are Christians. They knew they were Christians. They dragged them before the authority. And what did they say about them? These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I don't know about you, but I want to be known to the world as a guy who came and turned it upside down. I don't want people to be confused about who I am. I want them to know who I am brings up the age-old question, if it were illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The men who turn the world upside down, they're referring to Paul and Silas. They're trying to figure out where they're at, dragging the, the other Christian brothers in front of the authorities. But this Paul and Silas, they are making a difference. And I don't know about you, but that's how I want to be known. One of my favorite stories that Pastor Joseph tells was about the men that he worked with that used to call him Preacher Men. Preacher Men. They just referred to him as Preacher Men. And they probably meant it as an insult, but I just think that's awesome. That's amazing that they referred to him as Preacher Men. And many years later, he would run into people that worked with him after years, and they would still call him Preacher Men. You want to know why? Because he's the guy that came to turn the world upside down. When people saw Pastor Joseph, to them he was just Joseph, another guy with a hammer, working on the house next to him. But when they saw Joseph, they saw Christ reflected because he wasn't afraid. How many know that if they call you preacher man, there's enough evidence to convict? Amen? Hallelujah. Matthew 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Faithfulness, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You know, we start talking about one, how we personally behave, how we behave towards others. The next thing is we need to be consistent in what we do. You see, the problem that the Pharisees have is they would pick and choose the stuff that they want to do. And You notice that Jesus doesn't say, listen, you tithe mint and dill, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. You should have not worried about that. You should have just did the weightier matters. He doesn't say that. Jesus says, listen, you ought to have done one without neglecting the others. They should have done it all. So the the problem that they were having here is that their words and actions weren't actually matching. They were hypocrites. Jesus called them hypocrites. And we talked about this earlier. Why do, why do, so many, why do Christians have this uh, uh, reputation of being hypocrites? It's because too many of us are like these Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were one thing on the outside and a different thing on the inside. We need to be consistent in our words, in our deeds, in our actions. Whether we're out in front of people or we're home by ourselves, we should be consistent. And like I said, when people see you, they begin to affix what you do to the Lord. And when we begin to live like that, when we're not consistent in our actions, when we are living as hypocrites, we are actually dragging the name of Jesus through the mud. Amen? I mean, think about, we just we briefly mentioned them a second ago, but think of all the famous TV evangelists that have failed and the damage that that has done to Christianity. Do you know how many people have fallen away from the faith because big-name pastors and evangelists have failed? And now that's a catch-22 because ultimately it's responsible of the individual person for their own faith and salvation. It's not the evangelist. But man, I never want to be in a position where somebody said, you know what, I believed until you messed up. 
I never want to be in a position where something that I did influenced somebody else to fall away. But people attach the failure of these men to all Christians and even to Christ. Amen? James 1, 21 through 24 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not just hearers only, deceiving yourself. You know, not only are we responsible to make sure that we're hearing the word, and that means going to church, reading your Bible, doing, doing your own personal study, responsible to hear the word, but you're also responsible to live that word out, to be doers of the word as well. We need to remind our, our, our uh, we need to renew our mind daily. We need to make sure that our faith is growing, but we also have to live out what we are hearing, what we're learning. We got to make sure that we're not immediately forgetting on Monday what we learned on Sunday. Too many people come, come to church on Sunday, and I know nobody in this church, but in some churches, people come to church on Sunday, and then Monday, they're just living back the way that they were. It is a checklist thing. It's not actually a life transformed by Jesus Christ. Amen? Matthew Henry said this, If we heard a sermon every day of the week, and an angel from heaven were the preacher, yet if we rested in hearing only, it would never bring us to heaven. You can't just hear the word, but you also have to do it as well. Amen? And James 1, 21-24 says, For anyone if is a... Uh, sorry, this is the rest of that. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Such a beautiful image. You come on church on Sunday, you see who you are, you're all excited, and then Monday you're right back to who you were. You forgot who you were. You see, you came to church and you learned who you were. This is who you are in Christ. This is what he did for you. This is that you've been changed. You've been made brand new. And that's exciting. And you get, But it, that word, what happens is it fell on, on rocky soil and it was stolen away on Monday. And you forget who you were for the rest of the week. That's not who we're to be, Christians. Amen? Romans 12, 18. This is another important one. I think too many Christians <laughs> forget about this one. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, leave peaceably, live peaceably with all. You know, the, the thing is, is that there's a couple things that can help you with this. First of all, um, when you're dealing with non-believers, we're not to play God. We're not to be their judge. Now, we can have an argument, and other people always want to say, Christians should never judge. That's not true. In the body of Christ, we are to judge one another. That's what the Word says. We're to hold each other accountable. But when we're talking about the world, and that's what this is, this is dealing with, the peaceably with all, he's talking about the rest of the world here. Um, we are crazy to judge non-Christians as if they were Christians. If they're not Christians, for us to expect them to act like Christians is just lunacy on our part. Why would we expect them to act like Christians if they're not Christians? That just doesn't make any sense. And if they are Christians, the truth is, is that we do need to have permission to speak in their life. It's one of the things that I think is, is so important is to have a relationship before you start correcting other people. If I know somebody's a Christian and they don't know who I am, I can't just go out on the street and start trying to correct them. They're never going to receive it. They're never going to hear it. So that puts us in some positions where people might be doing something that's at odds with what we believe or how we think that they should live or all those things. But the Scripture says, as far as it depends on you, still live peaceably with all. If you wrong somebody, apologize and ask them for forgiveness. That's our responsibility. Did you know that? You remember that scripture where it says if you come to the altar and you remember that, that uh, somebody has something against you, you should go to them. Isn't that interesting? You're not even part of it. They have something against you, but you should put your gift down and go and try to make that right with them. The reality is, is that our, we should as Christians want to be living peaceably with everybody, even people that are diametrically opposed to what we believe. That means that we help people out. Don't try to make their lives harder. We show them that we love them through our word and deeds so that they could see Christ loving us. Now, I will point out a couple things. One, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. So what does this mean? Let's go back to that, that, that example of, of you're at the altar with your gift and you remember somebody has something against you. You put your altar on, you go to speak to them. 
and you try to give them an opportunity, we try to make an opportunity for things to be rectified. If they still refuse, there's nothing you can do. You did all that you could, depending on you. If you hurt somebody, and you recognize they say, you know what, I need to go apologize to them. And you go, and you go before them, and you say, listen, I've wronged you. I know I've done wrong. I'm really sorry. I apologize. I won't do it again. And they choose not to forgive you, and they choose to remain bitter. There's nothing you can do about that. That's, you did everything as possible. It depends on you. It also doesn't mean that, that we're supposed to... to and when we talk about dealing with non-Christians, it doesn't mean that that, that that means we're okay with everything that they do or we approve everything that they do. We can still be amenable with people and have relationships with people to some extent, even if they're living in sin, something we diametrically oppose. doesn't mean we have to agree with what they do. It doesn't mean we have to approve of what they do. In many cases, we're going to be diametrically opposed to what they do, and we might even be taking matters to, to try to stop those things from happening. For example, abortion. As Christians, I think we should be doing everything in our, 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 our legal power that we can to, to make sure that abortion is not legal, to make sure that, that young babies are protected and that they live. But that doesn't mean that, that we have to be awful to people who believe differently. As far as it depends on us, we need to live peaceably with all. Amen? And then finally, we'll end here. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, it says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's a perfect example of the, the Bible telling us exactly what it means to have, to be a light. Let your light shine before others. How do you do that? Or what happens when you do that, when your light is shining? Is that they can see your good works and give glory to the Father. We are to share our faith and our light with the world. We're to live our lives in such a way that when they see us, they see Jesus, that they see our good works and they give glory to the Father. We're supposed to share the gospel. We're supposed to tell people about Jesus. We're supposed to live our lives in such a way that people can see that Jesus has changed our lives. One of the things that drives me crazy with other Christians is people who don't share the faith or uh, with, with, with other people, or one that drives me crazy is when people don't do it with their kids. And they say, oh, I don't want to push my religion on somebody. I want them to make up their own mind. I don't want to push this on them. People that say that are deceived. Somebody is preaching to your kid, make sure it's you, and not the world, Amen. And the truth is, we say, oh, I don't want to push my religion on people. Do you really believe what you say you believe? Do you believe that if they don't get saved, they're going to hell, that they will spend eternity without Christ? But if they put their trust in him, they can be saved? Do you believe that? What kind of awful person are you if you don't tell people that they can be saved if you really believe that? I mean, think about that. I mean, to, to, to say that, oh, I don't want to push my religion on somebody, either you don't believe what you say you believe, or that's just kind of a scummy thing to do. It would be like telling somebody that, the, that they're about to go into a building that's on fire, and you, have, you can say, hey, no, that building's on fire. You need to stay safe. And you're like, you know what? I don't want to impose my will on them. If they want to go in, they can go in. What kind of person do you have to be to let somebody run into that kind of danger? We're lights to the world. We should be sharing our faith. We should be sharing the gospel. And here's the thing. It's not your responsibility for them to believe. That's their responsibility. But it's your responsibility to be that light and share it with them. Amen.